Are you ready to open your mind and your heart? Welcome to the Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival, with your host, Lauren N. Nile. We can mature beyond today's prejudice and xenophobia. We can save our beautiful planet. The keys are self-awareness, awareness of others, and most important, love. Now, here's Lauren. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. I'm your host, Lauren Nile. Well, again, just to tell you a little bit about myself, I'm a trainer and a keynote speaker, and I also uh, facilitate retreats for organizations, and I work in all kinds of areas, leadership, communication, conflict resolution, working with different temperaments, all of those kinds of things, and I enjoy them all. But my passion is really for... Uh, what some people call inclusivity work, or it used to be called diversity work. My passion is for helping us as human beings to really see each other's humanity and, and to understand that all seven-plus billion of us on this planet are equally valuable and equally precious, and that if we're going to survive and hopefully even thrive in the future as a species, we must mature beyond all of the isms, sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, ageism, ableism, in other words, discrimination and prejudice against people with disabilities, you name it. We've got to mature beyond all of it as a species, because otherwise I don't see that we have a very, um, certainly not a very happy future, and perhaps not even a future at all. So um, that's a little bit about me. You can learn more about me and my work at my website, laurennile.com. If you've been following the show, you also know that I wrote a book. The name of the book is Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line. Uh, and, and I'm doing the same thing in the book that I'm trying to do with my show, and that is uh, try to make the case that all of us are precious human beings that need to be valued, that deserve to be valued. I started with race, but certainly I'm going to go on to all of the equally as important other isms, if you will, uh, sexism and ageism and all of those things. Now, what is my show about? Again, if you've been following, you know that. I'm doing it because my goal is to increase empathy and compassion among people. My goal is to educate us about each other's experiences, each other's perspectives, so that we can indeed, at least a little bit, grow in our understanding of others and in our appreciation of others. So, so far, we've had, um, well, the first show was actually just an introduction to, to the series, and then... The next show was entitled Humanity. We're all related, and our DNA proves it. Then I did a show on our unconscious bias, the source and the cure. Then the next show was Unearned Privilege. What is it, and what, we, what can we do about it? And uh, Unearned Privilege, as I explained, was one of those things that we are often unconsciously uh, you know, aware of or, or not consciously aware of, I should say. And then we did a show. We did a show on microaggressions. It was entitled Microaggressions, a Real Education on the Experiences of Others, in which I described um, some experiences of, of being African-American and uh, other experiences that people have um, related to me of being disabled or, or being a senior citizen, being an older person, for example. And then we had shows on two shows, actually, the last two shows on common responses to conversations uh, about prejudice-based microaggressions and responses to those common responses. Now, in, in those shows, what we did is we described many of the ways in which people often um, respond, if you will, to another person's sharing with them some incident that happened to them in, in a store or 
going to pick up their child from daycare or driving or just in living their life. Um, we talked about how people often respond. What are the 20 most common responses, actually, in those kinds of conversations? And essentially, they are minimization and denial. Ah, it happens to everybody. Why do you think it happened to you because of your race? Ah, stop harping on it. Stop looking for it. Everybody has a bad waiter every now and then. And we, we talked about those responses and how to respond to them. And we also talked about the impact of those kinds of responses on human relationships and on society at large. Well, today, we're going to go a little bit deeper And in this show, we're going to be talking about the psychology of prejudice, the the psychology of prejudice. And as you know, I'm starting on race, but I'm going to go on to all of the other isms, all of which are equally as important. Um, And so we're going to talk about specifically, um, in addition to all of the other isms, we're going to focus on the psychology of racism, its impact on both European Americans and Americans of color and the planet. In other words, how does it impact those who may unconsciously hold many of these stereotypes? And indeed, I mean, everybody, even if you're a person of color, we all hold stereotypes, all of us. Um, But in terms of power dynamics um, and in terms of the people who experience them much more often, how does it impact them psychologically? So that's our focus for today. And um, the title of the show is The Psychology of Racism, Its Impact on European Americans and Americans of Color and on the Planet. Um, so, and certainly we can generalize to talk about uh, how it impacts um, people who um, are, as I say, uh, both the recipients very often and those who are, um, you know, the ones who hold uh, the unconscious bias. So we're going to get right into uh, the question of the day. What is the psychological impact on human beings of being a regular target of others' unconscious bias? Now, I say unconscious because more often than not, it is unconscious. Honestly, I, I don't think that the average person is intentionally racist or sexist or homophobic or anti-Semitic. I really don't. Um, but we know that there's a difference between intent and impact, and so we're going to be looking at, regardless of the intent, what is the impact, the psychological impact on another person of being the regular target of others' unconscious bias? How does it impact the human spirit to frequently be on the receiving end of, of some behavior that is a result of of unconscious bias. So, um, again, if you've been following the show, you've heard me mention some of my experiences uh, as an African-American of being followed around in stores. still happens to me all the time. That's why I hate shopping. Um, You've heard me describe my uh, experiences, experiences of being monitored in fitting rooms much more closely than the other customers. Uh, You've heard my stories of being stopped by the police when I was doing nothing wrong. I was driving while black. Got a ticket. It was in Minnesota. I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. Uh, What was I going to do? Go fly back to Minnesota to fight the ticket and say, Your Honor, you stopped me because I'm black. Right. How far would that get me? Although I saw saw that police officer take a double take. I saw it. I saw him do the double take when he saw me, and I went, Oh, goodness, here it is. Um, But, you know... It's one of those things, one of those many things you have to just swallow and move on with your life. Because I wasn't about to go back to Minnesota to fight that ticket and lose. Um, what I didn't share with you uh, were experiences of, you know, people asking me to teach them, oh, teach me this dance, uh, as if I know every dance, um, because I'm African American. And so often I've had to say, I, I actually don't know that dance. You know, I didn't share with you my experiences, uh, or actually this only happened once, truthfully. A friend, a very good friend actually, 
saying, well, where would you like to go to dinner? Uh, there's a good Chinese restaurant down the block. I said, you, you like Chinese food? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> being surprised that I like Chinese. This actually, this, this friend of mine is still a very, very good friend of mine even today. We talked about this. And we had a wonderful conversation about it. And um, uh, because we have gone through experiences like that with each other in a very compassionate way toward each other, we are really good friends. Um, I, I didn't tell you about my experience of working with a client who said to me on the phone, after I told her that I was African-American, oh my, I, I'm just, I'm surprised, you, you sound like a white woman. <laughs> um, you know, I, I didn't, I, I might have shared with you actually, um, my cousin's experience of, uh, my male, young male cousin's experience of coming into my house almost in tears about the fact that a woman was uh, approaching him uh, in a store, a big retail store, when he was going to get oil for his car and literally clutching her purse so tight that she almost dropped it. Um, and how he was so upset at the fact that people are so often afraid of him, and he sees that fear reaction every day. And as I said on the show, my cousin is dark-skinned, which I think makes it even worse. Um, so what we're going to be looking at today is how those kinds of slights, how those kinds of hurts, no matter how unintentional, and that one experiences throughout one's life, uh, how they impact a person's psychology and their, and their spirit, or how they can impact the person. Um, so uh, those are a few examples that are based on racism, but I could give you other examples of sexism that I've experienced, and I can give you examples of a friend of mine who uh, is a paraplegic and what she experiences as a person with a disability. Uh, I have Jewish friends, very good friends, and they've told me their stories of uh, being on the receiving end of anti-Semitism, unconscious anti-Semitism. Um, and so we're going to be talking about how that impacts people uh, when you're oftentimes kind of regularly uh, on the receiving end of that kind of behavior. So here with us today, I'm so happy, I'm so happy to, to be able to inform you that here with us today to discuss the psychology of the isms and their impact on both majority groups and groups are the targets of the isms is Dr. Gary Bell. Dr. Bell is a counseling psychologist and a licensed marriage and family therapist. He is uh, crisis certified and sees clients of all ages and backgrounds. Dr. Bell is also a contributing writer uh, to Women's Day magazine on therapy topics, which I'm very proud of, Gary, for. Um, Dr. Bell, I'm pleased to uh, also say, is a radio talk show host right here at Voice of America. The title of his show is Absurd Psychology, and it airs on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific. So I'm just going to read a little bit uh, of the description of Dr. Bell's show because I love this description. It's just, and it's a great show. So just bear with me. Believe me, you'll enjoy it. Dr. Show, Dr. Bell's show is not for the faint of heart or a sensitive spirit. Dr. Bell's absurd psychology is about helping our lives in the insane world in which we exist today. It's a sarcastic, smart, and witty view of the lives we cope with, including straight answers, real information, and new perspectives to bring life back to our existence. Dr. Bell brings deep insight and common sense to his show and weaves into it general knowledge of how the brain operates under various circumstances. He challenges all of us to own our lives and how to... How do we become the change we want to see in an ever-changing world? If anything, by listening to Dr. Bell's show, Absurd Psychology, you just might sound smarter to your friends. Everyone is an armchair therapist, but after listening to Absurd Psychology, you'll know enough to be dangerous. There's no whining allowed. This is a search for essence, passion, and meaning as we exist 
surrounded by mediocrity and security and insignificance. So Dr. Bell says, take your medication and listening. You just might learn something. Again, Dr. Bell's show airs on the Empowerment Channel uh, here on Voice of America at 1 p.m. Pacific. So welcome, Gary, to the show. Again, thank you for being my guest. I am so happy to have you with us today. Lauren, I'm so thrilled to be on the show with you. This is fantastic that you got the show going. Um, you're such a good friend also, and I, I'm so proud of you, and, and I know that this thing's going to succeed for you. I certainly hope so, Gary. What I'm going to ask you to do is cross-promote me, let your listeners know that you're being interviewed on my show today, and hopefully we'll get some of them going with us here. That's right. I'm going to have you on my show very soon. Um, I've oh, got a great. couple shows Thanks. I've got to knock out, and then, uh, and then I'm going to have you on. Perfect, perfect. Look forward to it. So, Gary, as a doctor, as a, as a trained, uh, licensed psychologist, uh, crisis certified, licensed uh, marriage and family therapist, you heard me set the show up. Can you just tell us uh, broadly, really, and then we'll drill down into some specifics, because you know when you and I get talking in a conversation, we just go there. It goes, um, yeah. <laughs> well, what you know, are let's just, let's just the impact the- of the kinds of uh, unconscious bias, the behaviors based on unconscious bias that you heard me describe a few minutes ago? Yeah, you know, if you look back uh, at evolution, just in the sense of how we've evolved as a, a species, we have been a tribal creature from the very, very beginning. And what that means is we develop cliques, we develop tribes, we, do, we develop uh, cultures within our tribes. And that's what happens over time. And as we move from Africa into the Middle East and into Europe, and then on a, across over to the United States and South America and Russia and China, a, as we expanded, these little clicks was is how we all learned to develop. And then as we moved to different climates, we also adapted to those climates by developing different colors and different pigments and different features and also different cultures to adapt to those things. And people hate change. They want everything to be familiar so that they can actually uh, feel like they're safe. And, and so what they do is they fall within that culture and then they look for others who embrace what they see as that culture. Uh, unfortunately, it's also moved in this idea of clicks has also uh, moved into our media. And now it's a thing called identity politics, where basically we establish a label based on a presentation or a word or how someone phrases something, how someone looks. And basically we slap a big label on them and then that's all they are. And it's, it's very sad. It's, it's very sad that the world has moved in that direction with the media because we're in a global economy and we can't afford to be prejudiced. We are people. If you look at our DNA from the past 150,000 years, which you could swipe your mouth with a Q-tip and mail it into beanbase.com uh, and find out that you are a of every species in the world. I mean, I'm even, I'm part black, I'm part Indian, I'm part Portuguese, I'm part English, I'm part Scottish, Irish, Canadian. I mean, it goes uh, Middle Eastern, <laughs> African, it goes everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting that as you peel back your generations of what you've been related to, you find out more about yourself. And if anything, mm. You learn medically about yourself, about what you could be vulnerable to in your genetics, and that helps also. But, you know, the world, I, I grew up in desegregation when the schools were desegregating. Uh, when mm. I was a little kid, I grew up in Indiana, on a, you know, in a little community. 
And basically, wow. um, I'd never even met a person of a different race mm-hmm. until then. Sure, and at sure. that time, I discovered those kids often were my best friends because I'm, I'm a friendly person and they felt I was friendly, <laughs> I guess. And so we got along and I'm a talker and they, they, they were like, okay, cool. You know? And so my best friends growing up were, were black, were uh, Latino because we had the farms and stuff like that where folks came up mm-hmm. and would live uh, there and help the, with the farms. And so, I mean, there was all kinds of variety of, of culture that, w- that I was exposed to that if we didn't have desegregation, that never would have happened. Sadly, if I joined a team, like a baseball team, my best friend, Robert Barnes, he joined with me, and he never got to play. Mm -hmm. I got to play. I played first base. He he played outfield every once in a while, barely got to bat. I never understood Mm -hmm. that because he was the best athlete athlete on the team. And and it hurt him, and it hurt me. So I quit baseball. I quit, Mm. and he quit, and we left it. Because it was like, we don't need this, you know? Wow. My, he would call so, my dad. So you dad were aware, even though you were young, mom, it sounds mom. like you were aware at the time that <laughs> okay. he wasn't getting to play and wasn't getting to bat as much, et cetera, because of his race. It sounds like you were both aware of that. Oh, totally. I, I, mm. I, it blew my mind. He was the best athlete on the team. Wow. By far. Wow. Now, Gary, boy, every time we speak, this happens. There are so many things that you mentioned that I want to go back and ask about, and I know time won't allow us to, to, you know, ask about every single thing that I'm curious about. But I'm just going to start because um, your story was amazing, and I thank you for that. So um, just following up on a couple of the things that you just mentioned. Okay. Uh, You said that because of, of desegregation, you were exposed as a child to people of many different races and ethnicities. What do you think, if, if a person does not have that experience, if, if they aren't that fortunate in their childhood to have the exposure to, to various different people, various kinds of people, um, and they reach adulthood without having had that experience, which is the case, unfortunately, for many, many people, I think, unfortunately, um, as an adult, what would you suggest to that person if someone, for example, in your practice were to go to you and say, uh, listen, Dr. Bell, I know I have these prejudices, or I don't know if they're prejudices. Maybe they're, they're, they're just a low comfort level with people who don't look like me, and it's because I just don't know. I didn't grow up with the. I don't know that. I don't have a familiarity. What would you suggest to such a person, Gary? You know, I, I, you have to take a leap of faith. If you want mm. to change your life and adapt to the way the world is, which is uh, is a world full of cultures. I mean, we're here in a, we are a melting pot in the United States. We cannot afford to be prejudiced. That is the stupidest thing you could possibly be. And life is a leap of faith. If you're going to live in fear, you're never going to grow as a person. You're never going to adapt. And all you're going to do is teach your children to do the same thing. It's a leap of faith. And so meeting and, and, and getting to know other people, and believe me, my, my practice is full of every possible uh, cultural background you could dream of. And, and the cool thing about it is, is that I love to learn. I love to learn. Not all, I learn from them as much as they learn from me. And, 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 you know, the world offers us a lot of knowledge that we can use in our lives. But if we only apply what we have we, we never expand and grow, and that's what evolution is about. It's our, about our ability to adapt, and our ability to adapt means that we shred our cultural differences, we shred our perceptions, and we begin to live in the moment and look at the person in front of us and be who we are with that person. 
And, and by doing that, the world becomes faith-based, not fear-based. And that's wow. how we operate. And that's why traveling the world, if people ever get a chance to go out there and, and dive into other cultures and not be a vacationer but be a traveler, what you're mm. going to find is there's nothing to fear. There's a lot to learn, <laughs> though. There's nothing to fear. Wow. Wow. You know, I could not agree more, Gary. And I think that for many people, the lack of personal comfort, if you will, because, you know, for, for some people it is unconscious bias, of course. But for others, I, really, I do see somewhat of a fear reaction. It's, and, and even if it's not fear, it's sort of um, a, a lack of comfort, discomfort, or um, I, I, it's, it's, it's hard to describe it really other than to say there's a lack of comfort um, or, or apprehension. Um, so, for example, I, I was dry, <laughs> just, I don't know, a month ago or so, I was dropping off some dry cleaning before going to work in the morning, and there was a new person there that I had not seen in that dry cleaning establishment before, um, a very pleasant young white woman, but when I walked in and she had to, she had to relate to me, I could just, you can see the apprehension in her face. It's almost like, oh, how is this interaction going to go? You could, it's, and it's not, it's not hatred, it's not, you know, I wouldn't even call it fear. Maybe if I was a male, there might be more of a fear reaction, maybe, but because I'm female, I think I'm shielded from, from much of the actual fear reaction. But the apprehension, it's just there. And I, I just want to say, I'm just a person, I'm just a human being. Um, so I agree, so much of it is, is fear-based, and the fear, I think, is based on, you know, lack of exposure. Um, so I love what you said, Gary. I love what you said uh, that we there's more to learn, much more to learn than there is to fear. Because um, yeah, you know, I think that you people know, do crazy things out of fear, you know, because fear is based perhaps I don't know, and well, you would know better than I in self survival or self protection or something. Well, yes. I mean, we grew up where there were a lot of creatures bigger than us, and there was we were had to hunt to uh, to live. And so we had, we've developed in our brain, if you look at the neurology of the brain, the brain stem will take over. And so that means fight or flight will happen for you to survive. And that means we collect traumatic memories in order to have a, an instant automatic reaction, uh, basically, to whatever we see or hear or smell that may have been dangerous to us. And that primitive thing has come from, from, our, uh, from our backgrounds. Sadly, you know, a lot of people live in their in fear, which means they live in their feelings, and they're feeling based, and so they are very reactive to the world. Uh, so, a person like you're talking about would it, it'd be the same thing if you were a police officer, you know, and they had a guilty yeah. conscience or they had a sense of they did something wrong. They're always yeah. going to be a little bit timid and a little bit scared in their behavior towards that, but they're looking at the badge; they're not looking at the person. And so right. what you're getting is a person that's looking at the uniform and not looking at the person. And it's sad, wow. but that's how people are. And, uh, you know, there, there's also reverse prejudice. You know, people have had bad yeah. experiences, you know, maybe with somebody of the minority or whatever, and, and maybe they get traumatized from that, and then they carry it over yeah. and label it on every other person too. Um, but, right. Right. you know, walking around looking for trouble is never going to be a life you're going to love. <laughs> No, it's certainly not a good way to have a good life. <laughs> right. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Gary, what you said is, is I think, so crucial. We, we look at the uniform and not at the person, you know, at the cover. I mean, you know, I was 
born to my parents the same way everybody else is born to theirs. It's not an identity that I chose or that I had any, you know, any uh, thing to do with. I, I found myself in this body the way, we, the way we all find ourselves in our bodies. Um, and so, you know, when we get to the point at which we can really understand that all of us came into the world the exact same way, we just found ourselves in these identities, whatever these identities happen to be. When we get to the point of, of, of really realizing that, I think, um, that'll be a big step toward our ability to really understand each other, at least see each other as, as human beings, you know. Well, um, you know, you gotta, you got to look at people and go, you are a soul living a human life. And this this human life, this body you have is getting you to function and actually exist. And a lot of people never leave just their human existence and do what their soul is intended to do. A lot of people live in mediocrity and compromise and stupidity and impulse decisions and uh, prison. And (laughs) (laughs) they they get trapped into a life that they have no choices because they're so stupid they don't do what they're passionate about. You know, mm-hmm. anything hard makes your life easier. Do something hard. Do something mm-hmm. hard that's for other people, and maybe you will get off your butt and do something powerful that will help others. Don't do it wow. for yourself. Do it for them. And, and if people nice. do that soul work, they, they live what's called a full, rich, passionate life. And that wow. means that they become an individual. And this country is such a wonderful country because it's founded on rugged individualism. And if you look at that title, that rugged individualism, if you want to read about it, Anne Rand, Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead, those are great books to read. That is the essence of who we are. We're individuals, and we have a purpose, and we need to grab that and go, what am I really good at, and what do I just get lost in time doing, and go there and then give it back to other people because you're the expert that they seek. Wow. You know, I yeah, uh, I I am aware of the concept of, of of rugged individualism, and I certainly see myself as 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 someone who loves my individualism and and who loves my uh, I guess like all of us, you know, we have a certain amount of of creativity and uniqueness, and I certainly love mine. I'm sure um, as much as you know the average person for sure, uh, and and I'm also um, very much a believer in you know uh, the good of collective work and and you know all of looking out for each other compassionately. So I, I have that piece of me as well. But Gary, I wanted to ask you, when you said, wow, when you said, hey, we are souls uh, having a human experience, and we're using, we're using these bodies as, as you know, tools to, to have our human experience, um, I really, uh, that resonates with me so deeply, Gary, and I thank you for saying that. Now, as sad as it is, and this is, a, oh my gosh, a very... I'm going to say deep, for lack of a better word, and um, tragic uh, reality. But there are actually people. I have researched this for years. In fact, I tracked it for years, and I finally stopped tracking it because it was just too depressing. It got too depressing for me. But then, uh, and I'll tell you what it is in just a second, (laughs) but then um, that trigger around this issue that I'm about to describe was uh, that trigger was sort of reactivated for me recently because I, I looked at a, a YouTube video. It was a TED Talk by um, a professor uh, who works in implicit... He works in implicit bias, and he talked about one of the biases that many people have uh, regarding a specific group. So after the break, I'll come back, I'll describe that for you, and then I'd like you to comment on that. 
Okay, Got let's it. go to break. See you on the other side. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the fate of humanity. Crucial Conversations for Our Survival, and we are engaged in conversations on this show, which I believe are critical for our survival as a species. Uh, one of the things that we're going to do uh, in time is also talk about uh, how crucial it is for us as human beings to really see a larger picture and to see where we are, to understand, to be curious about where we are in the universe. I mean, really, physically, um, and and if we can keep our eye on that big picture, it will really help us all to to see that we exist on a tiny, fragile, beautiful planet that all of us call home. And with that perspective, hopefully, we can move beyond some of the isms that we are focusing on in our show. So that's going to be a fun show. That's going to be a, a science show in which I'm going to be talking to an astrophysicist about where we are in the universe. But... For today, we're talking, coming right back down to Earth, <laughs> we're talking about uh, the psychological impact on uh, being on a fairly regular basis uh, on the receiving end of others' unconscious bias, bias based on race or gender or, or religion or disability, age, what have you. And we have with us uh, our guest today. I'm very happy to say that we have Dr. Gary Bell, who's a counseling psychologist and a licensed marriage and family therapist, talking to us um, about some of the psychological impacts of of being on the receiving end of unconscious bias. And before the break, Gary had mentioned that, you know what, 
we're all souls. We're all souls on this earth, living in these bodies as our our tools, if you will. You might think about I'm. I'm, these are my words now. We might think about our bodies as, as cars, you know. Uh, we use them to get around. Uh, imagine if some alien person came to Earth and mistook our cars for us, <laughs> you know, because they see the cars, they don't see us in them. Well, it's sort of the same thing. Gary said, we see the uniforms, but we don't see the person, you know. So Gary had said that before the break, we're all souls, um, and we are in these bodies to have a human experience. I totally and utterly agree. And I was just about to say to Gary that while I utterly agree with that statement, it's sad that there are people who don't see the humanity, literally the humanity of, of others who look different from them. And specifically with regard to the group into which I was born, the racial group into which I was born in the United States, African Americans, I tracked for many years the ways in which, whether it's a judge or a sportscaster or a, or a, a college professor it, or a CEO of a major corporation, I tracked, by, and by tracking I mean I cut out of, this was before the Internet, cut out of newspapers and magazine articles that I would read, uh, references of African Americans to apes and orangutans and chimpanzees and gorillas. It was. It became so. At first, I thought, yeah, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, this is horrible. But then, when I started seeing it over and over again, I thought, I've got to, I've got to start cutting these things out because people won't believe me if I talk about how often this happens. Uh, comparisons to African Americans as recent to to rhesus monkeys and and things like that. Well. Um, I stopped tracking it years ago. I stopped cutting out those articles in those newspapers. I don't go looking for it. Um, I wasn't looking for it then. I was just living my life, you know, doing what I call my pop research by reading newspapers and reading magazines, and I would come across this stuff. Um, but at any rate, um, I stopped because it was just too painful. That trigger, though, that trigger of seeing African Americans as not being totally human but being indeed closer to the higher primates, um, was well, that trigger was pulled for me when President Obama was elected because uh, there were so many uh, cartoons and references to he and his family um, uh, as being apes um, that 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 ugliness that i hadn 't really thought about honestly in years was just right front and center for me because it came out so much when the Obamas were elected. Um, and then most recently I was watching uh, a YouTube video, a TED Talk, given by a college professor, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kang, K-A-N-G, and he was talking about implicit bias and the Harvard IAT, the um, Implicit Association Test, and he said, this group is identified with this and this group is identified with that, and African Americans are identified with X, Y, and Z characteristics and, of all things, apes. Now, he just made that video, I think, in 2015 or 2016. And I thought, gosh, still, still, that, that disgusting stuff is out there. So, Gary, when you said, you know, we're all souls, I, that's obvious to me. It's clearly obvious to you. But unfortunately, for some people, it is not the majority by far. And I hope it's not very many. I mean, I think you have to pretty much go on hate web, websites these days to get this stuff. But when Jeffrey Kang said that the IAT, the Harvard Implicit Association Test, uh, revealed that there is still that 
comparison, if you will, or that association of specifically African Americans with apes and chimpanzees and monkeys, it just hurt. It just hurt really badly. So I just want to thank you for acknowledging that no matter what our bodies, what we look like, who we are, we are divine souls, I believe, divine souls having a human experience in these very varied bodies. It's not like we get a choice. <laughs> so, <laughs> we just come, we come here with whatever's available. <laughs> so, it's you true. Have to adapt true. to it. <laughs> yeah. you know, we all come learn. in here having found ourselves here without having made a choice about it. Absolutely. That's it. You you got to get through with what you got. Um, but you know what, mm. I, Lauren, I got to tell you, people love yeah. black and white thinking because it's so easy. They they love to judge, mm. and that's why they love to just equate people to something rather than look at them as a person. You know, people wow. are mediocre by majority, meaning that they don't like to think deeply. They don't like, they like to form a judgment and just repeat it every day. You know, most people Wait, Gary, when you say people the, are mediocre by, what, what did you just say? Can you say that again? People are mediocre by? They're lazy. They just want to, they want to slap a label so they can make a judgment and move on so they don't have to evaluate or take time to think. Um, and so they, wow. they it's and, so and easy for them. And you said people are mediocre, I think you said by majority, meaning most people are this way? Oh, totally, totally. Um, wow. Yeah, you know, the, the, the people that really want to make a difference in life are the vast majority. And as the truth is, our true geniuses are people who never even come to grips with what they want to do with their life. Most of them go to drugs or alcohol or something else because they're very smart, but they never do anything with it. And it's sad because some of those people, if they just get their their life and gear and find a passion they might put that brain to work and do some great stuff but i don't want to get off topic but here's here's a strange thing you know in our culture as we grew, as we evolved into species and tribes as i talked about earlier we also had to hunt for our food and in hunting for our food meant intruders and other tribes coming close to us would affect our ability to survive and so we have a gene in our 32 common genes. It's, it's a hunter-gatherer gene. It's what creates little ADHD creatures, little kids, because that's when they're in their hunting phase is, is when they're in the height of their ADHD. But, um, and, of course, we stick them in school and make them sit there all day, and, and that's mm -hmm. not going to help them. So they're late bloomers oh. um, because the gene wanes as they get older. But, but outside of that, if you just look at the individual, at, at, at these, this hunter-gatherer gene, well, these hunters are meant to protect, and so some people are genetically designed to protect their tribe from other invaders. I mean, mm -hmm. we we have hunted for our food up to the last hundred years, and yeah. so the deal is we didn't have grocery stores and refrigeration and all that stuff. So that gene has been around for over one hundred fifty thousand years, and, and and if not millions. And and the fact is, is that now here we are. Uh, suddenly thrust into the idea that we can all go to the store and eat and do the same thing and, you know, form a, a somewhat stable life. But then, then we have to look at the fact that over the last 50 years, we didn't really, uh, we just started to mix our, our races together and mm -hmm. it, it was no, it's no longer the, the blacks are on the east side of town and the whites are on the, the, the west side of town, It's which is the way it was when I grew up. But... You know, the, the deal is now we're together. Now we're mixed together. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I look around in my neighborhood, I, I've got just about every uh, culture, race, and creed of person in our neighborhood, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful place. But <laughs> 50 years is not a lot of time for people to adapt to it. And no. so 
I think part of this millennial uh, deal that we have, generational deal, is these millennials are confused because they're trying to peel away from the bad learning that they got from their parents and from their cultures and try to develop into people. And that's kind of hard for them because they're, they're right on the cusp of, of change. And, and I think they're, they're overwhelmed but, uh, you know, and, and confused by the signals of prejudice that they've been sent when they were children. I know, mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I grew up w- at my grandmother's house in the forest behind her house was the Coon Hunters Club. Well, guess what that was? The Ku Klux wow. Klan. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, Elkhart, Indiana had a, had, a, had a billboard that said, no blacks allowed. You mm-hmm. drive by it on the freeway. Yeah. Um, wow. Now there's doctors that are that are that are African American that are actually in that city. Thank God. But mm-hmm. you know these things are eroding these prejudices mm-hmm. because you can't afford to do it anymore. You have mm-hmm. diversity. When you if you're going to work for a corporation, you have to take diversity courses because mm-hmm. you got to work with diversity. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> right? It's just the way That's it is. True. The law of the land yeah. is a lot different than it was 50 years ago, and we may have resentments. Yeah. You know, but the deal is you got to get on board. You're right, Sorry, right. <laughs> and while, Gary, you know, when you think about it, I mean, that, that, that is profound, that uh, we've been sort of in our hunter-gatherer mode, our fight-or-flight mode, our threat assessment mode, you know, with regard to animals. Is this animal something that can eat me or can I eat it? Uh, you know, as we go out to hunt. We've been in that mode for the vast, vast majority of our of our existence as a species. Or, and or, only or is that the, tribe going to invade our hunting space? Yes, yes. And so I have to be on guard, you know, and, and if necessary, rage, uh, wage war because it's survival of the fittest. And my group has to, you know, we have to protect what we have so that we can eat in the winter or whatever it is. Um, that, and so when you think about that and the fact that we've only lived as we live now, at least in the, in the developed world, for the last, as you say, 75 years, maybe, maybe 100 years, that is not a long time for our brains to catch up. So, you know, this, this fight or flight stuff, this, this uh, I have to be sure that I protect my clan and I'm going to do it at the expense of your clan if need be and all of that. That is, correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, I think that's somewhere back in our reptilian brainstem and that Absolutely. if we're really going to evolve out of that and live as we have the potential to live, because we are smart, we are very, very intelligent beings. If we're going to live our true potential as human beings with this amazing brain of ours, we have to start thinking not so much from our, I don't know, I guess it's the reptilian brainstem, but from that, uh, brainstem rather, but from that, what is that called, that, that, that front part, that corpus colossum or whatever, cortex. where we yeah. can engage in abstract thinking, in higher thinking. Would you, would you agree with that, Gary? Yeah, but you know that you know if as you know, you and I have traveled a lot uh, in this yeah. world and and I'll tell you when you look at a third world country, those folks live in a survival mode. They're trying to survive. they can't trust their police, they can't trust their government, not that we can, but <laughs> but we're safer. We are safer. That's right. why we're able to go to the moon, go to outer space, go to Mars, do all these great things because our brain now is allowed to think. We're safe. Mm-hmm. And when people are safe, they think differently. And now we have to adapt to being safe in the United States, and we no longer have to live in fight or flight. That means our brain can evolve, which calls for learning, which calls for other ideas, other cultures, other... Don't reinvent the wheel. Learn from somebody that's done it. Mm -hmm. And and that's how we got to get smarter. 
You know, uh, this, this old primitive, I'm not safe lifestyle is not helpful. And because we're, that's like, there's a lot of people that live like they live in a third world country and we don't, we just don't. Wow. Yep. Yep. I agree. I heard someone say years ago, you know, when the vast majority, majority of your, of your waking time, the vast majority of your energy is devoted to just, I mean, even if you live in this country, just putting food on the table, you're working two or three jobs just to be able to feed your kids. Um, and to, you know, buy clothes for them to go to school, if that's where you're spending the majority of your, of your energy, then you won't be engaged in, for example, you know, uh, literature critique or reading philosophy or, you know, uh, thinking about, uh, or, or engaged in, in thinking on an abstract level about the mysteries of the universe or how we can evolve as a species because you're just in survival mode. That's it. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but the ma- vast majority of the world is in survival mode. Wow. And that's why it, uh, it, it is, uh, that's why the, this is a very slow burn. Thankfully, mm-hmm. we have uh, social media, we have the internet, we have a lot of ways to connect with each other. Even these kids are playing on the Xbox 360s and stuff like that. They're talking to yeah. kids in Europe, Australia, Africa, South America. Mm-hmm. They're, they're making friends all over the world. That is a great thing. That is a wow. great thing. You know, because yeah. now you're discovering, wow, other people have a difference, but I'm loving spending time with them and enjoying their company. <laughs> you know, my God, yeah. that, what a better thing. I'm very hopeful for our future. I don't think in our lifetime we're going to see, see it go too far, but I'm hoping as, it, as, it, as we evolve with an, with an open economy, with an open world, with the, you know, the idea that we can make friends all over, we can travel very easily. As that happens, we cannot afford to be prejudiced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think you're right, Gary. And, you know, when you were talking about the Internet and how kids all over the world are making friends over the Internet, it reminded me of your story of, of growing up when, when the schools were being desegregated and how because of that mandate, um, you know, desegregate the, the public schools, you were able to be exposed to all different kinds of friends, friends of, of many different ethnic groups and races, and how that impacted you today as an adult. So, you know, you had the, I don't know, I guess I'm going to say perhaps the early 1970s version of it, um, and nowadays we have the current version, which is turn on any computer, and you have access to any person of any culture, any race, any background in any place on the planet. And I do agree, that that is one of the things that I think is going to most quickly revolutionize how we do this. I agree, you know, we're not going to get perhaps too far in our, in our lifetimes, um, but as time goes on, I think it'll just accelerate because people will have more and more and more access to each other across the planet. Yeah, and you know, I, unfortunately, I, I work lots of critical incidents, and what is amazing about critical incidents, uh, 9-1-1, yeah. 9-11 when that happened, and, and, and on through all these other things, Vegas and, and, and the shooting in, in Texas and, and the, the hurricanes and all that stuff, prejudice just goes away. That's what's amazing mm. about those scenarios. Now they're all working together to make their lives better and survive. And all of a sudden, all the labels get peeled off of a lot of those people, not all of them. And mm-hmm. suddenly, people get it together and find out what it's like to... to to really know uh, what a person's about, you know, and, and it strips it down to seeing the good in people. And, and those incidents, as tragic and horrible as they are, 
really bring out the good in people and remind people that no matter what your culture, what your color, you're a person and we're all going to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, there's actually research that, that indicates that very thing, Gary. Um, and what it, what it uh, shows specifically is that uh, sustained um, exposure to others in other words, being with other people, experiencing them on a daily basis, is what really, more than anything else apparently, is what really softens people's hearts, opens people's minds, allows people to see everybody's humanity. So, you know, I mean, there are, there are several things that the experts in these fields recommend. Um, you know, for example, they say, look, uh, go out of your way. I mean, consciously make an effort to see whatever the group is that, that you have prejudice about to see that group in a positive light. So do research on uh, scientists in that group and, and surgeons in that group. And, I mean, actually change your paradigm consciously by, by researching, you know, professionals in that group, humanitarians in that group, so that you can, you can get to see, wow, there are lots of good people in this group. That's one thing. But the thing that, um, at least just based on the research that I've done, the thing that even more than that changes people's minds and hearts is just what you're saying, being with people, you know, first-hand exposure. Um, that's how we get... And, and indeed, um, there's a young gentleman who um, is going around the country. I think he wrote a book, but he's certainly on the National Speaker Tour now, National Speaker Circuit now. Uh, yes, I think his book is called My Life After the Clan, I think. And he talks about what it was that took him from being, an, you know, just a rabid Ku Klux Klan member to now being someone who goes around the country talking about the danger of those kinds of organizations and how we all, as human beings, need to just see each other as human beings. And, and what he said did it. What he says is it was the fact that um, the people who I harmed forgave me. The, the, the people that I was so adamantly opposed to and the people who I so violently um, dehumanized in my, in my words and in my actions where people, I mean, these, uh, you know, he, he spent some time in, in, in jail, so I don't know if it was in jail or not, although I don't, wow, I would be surprised at that because that's a pretty harsh place. But I think certainly when he, when he got out of jail, he said, it was so many people of color who just put their arms around me and said, you're forgiven, essentially. Um, and then he said, that's when I got to see, wow, not only was I wrong, but I was dangerous. But, yeah, it's, it's that exposure. It's that real-life exposure that allows you to see others' humanity. It's called in vivo experience, and that's how we move away from trauma, is expose mm-hmm. ourselves to what we're afraid of and actually find that it's not what we need to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. yes, yes, the exposure leads to our understanding that, you know what, there really is nothing to fear here. You know? And, and the, the and, way to feel safe with people yeah. is look at the best in them. Don't look at the worst. You know, the, mm-hmm. if you're able, I, I always tell a story about my grandmother because she was such a good person. She would always, and she had some people that were dregs of the earth that were friends. But, but um, <laughs> you know, the, the deal was they would do anything for her. Uh, she was uh-huh. a little fat lady, sat in a, a little Cherokee Indian. She sat in her little little rocking chair and people would uh-huh. just parade through her house. And the reason <laughs> they did that was because she talked about how great they were and how nice they were and, and knew about their kids and knew about their life and remembered uh-huh. so many things and just brought out the best in them. And people, people starve for that. And if you uh-huh. do that, you're going to have a safe life. If you're able to yeah. look at the good in people, 
you're going to have a lot of friends with a lot of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. It's interesting you talk about your grandmother because my grandmother was the same way. That old lady was my heart. I loved her to the moon and back, and she was the exact same way. As, as she was born in 1906, but and, and you know grew up in, in in segregated New Orleans, the whole thing. But still, oh, wow. even as separated as that world was, she's still one of her best friends in the world. Was a woman that I only knew as Miss Mamie, and Miss Mamie's two kids, Marion and Don. And Don had a motorcycle when I was a kid. I guess he was about ten years older than me. So when I was ten, he was probably twenty, twenty-one, and he he would ride me on his motorcycle. To this day, I don't know how my grandmother and Miss Mamie became friends. I do not know, but they were like sisters. And so I saw early on from my grandmother, as it sounds you did from yours, Gary, um, that human compassion is the only way to live a life of dignity, a life, a happy life, and a life of integrity. So kudos to both our grandmothers, and we are so fortunate to have had them in our lives. Is your oh, grandmother yes. still with you? I'm sorry. Is, is, oh is no, your grandmother she's not, still she here, passed. Gary? She passed when I was in college, and uh, my other grandmother passed. Uh, Oh, just after okay, that, but okay. you know, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I got you beat there. I'm a little older than you, but I um, <laughs> yeah. Now, um, so, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Now, Gary. Um, one other thing I'd like to mention is that you, as you say, you you know, uh, grew up when schools were being desegregated. That is one of the ways I think in which. Um, you know, we can do good in this country. If you had asked the average, per, the average European American at that time, do you want schools to be segregated? Do you want communities to be, I mean, integrated, rather, do you want communities to be integrated? My guess is that the average person would have said no, again, based on the fear. But because it was something that was mandated, it actually had a good result. A whole generation of white kids and black kids and, you know, Hispanic kids uh, grew up having to be with each other. I remember when the buses were first integrated in New Orleans in 1964 when President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 64. Um, I remember when they were first integrated, I was 11, and I was in seventh grade, believe it or not, going to school three buses a day. And uh, when the buses were first integrated, you would sit next to a white person and they would stand up. They would immediately jump up. I'm not going to sit next to you. Well, that lasted, I don't know, three or four, five, six months. And then after that, they wouldn't stand anymore, but they would just scoot over real far, you know, to make sure that they didn't touch. And then after about another, I don't know, I don't remember clearly, but another several months had passed, they, the person wouldn't do anything. They'd just sit there and, I guess, daydream about whatever they were daydreaming about, maybe planning their, their, their dinner meal or, you know, thinking about their kids, I don't know, soccer game they might have to go to that night or whatever. But my point is that it was exposure. It was, it was, it was having to do something uh, that was probably not their will that allow people to see, you know what, there really is nothing to be afraid of. There really is. There really isn't. But in both instances, with regard to desegregating the schools and desegregating the buses, people had to be made to do it. And in both instances, it wound up having um, a good result. So, you know, we're all individuals, and we don't like, you know, the government telling us what to do. But in this instance, uh, sometimes we have to be told, otherwise it wouldn't happen. And uh, I'm sort of glad. Well, you know, least, if people can glad fight and die for this country, and, and, and if people have to follow the laws of this country, and, and whatever your culture or your skin or whatever, you know, if you're going to live here, you need to be a person, not, not a label. You know, yeah, it, it, yeah. these people do, we all have to 
sacrifice just to be citizens of this country, if it's sacrificing mm. through taxes, if it's sacrificing through following the laws that you may or may not agree with. But the deal is we're here and we got to accept. You know, peace is acceptance. Mm. If you want to live in peace, decide to accept and stop giving energy to stupid stuff that doesn't really help you. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. People do give energy to that stuff. Lots of it. And it's sad because, as you say, Gary, so many folks have so much genius, so much potential, intellectual potential, artistic potential, scientific potential. But yet when we focus on the absurd, to use your word, absurd psychology, we, we don't get the best of ourselves. You know, there, there are so many, and I've said this for years, there are so many geniuses, mathematical geniuses, scientific geniuses, artistic geniuses, who are, you know, living in the barrios and in the inner cities and on the reservations and in Appalachia and who are involved with the Ku Klux Klan and give all of their energy to, to other hate groups. That it is tragic because many of those people have so much to give to our species, to humanity. But yet, they're fo- as you say, they're focused on the absurd, you know? They're mentally uh, handicapped. <laughs> Ooh. Wow, okay. Oh, well, um, on that note, I know when to close on a good note, and that was a good note, a note to think about. Thank you so much, Gary, for being my guest today. Really, really appreciate it. You've been wonderful, giving us all much food for thought. We're going to come back next week with The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. Gary, you want to say goodbye? Goodbye, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, listeners. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. Please join your host, Lauren N. Nile, for another edition of our program next Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you right here next week.